I don't know. You wake up at 4.45am, you get yourself a cuppa, and then you notice there's a message from one of your patrons. And wow, it's a doozy of a message. Have a listen to this. G'day Shay, this is uh, Paris Conti, the pure mongrel here in Geelong, Australia. Mate, just first of all, a big shout out and thank you for your podcast. I'm a huge, unashamed, huge fan. Um, as someone who loves to look at the reason why people play role-playing games, what it means to the human experience, and the whole philosophy behind the role-playing experience. Um, I'm a huge fan. It's it's very rare to find someone that's actually looking at the hobby from that angle, and I find your approach very, refresh, very refreshing. So thank you. Um, mate, I've got a question for you. So the question is, how do you set the expectation for your players in your game? And by that, I mean their responsibility or their role within the game. So this bit of context, um, I work with a lot of young people. Uh, I developed a program that uses gaming to help young people develop communication and interpersonal skills via gaming that will then go on and help them in their future. So to to help them communicate with others effectively, to become empathic, understanding things like consequence of action, etc. And my speciality is using role-playing games to do that. We do also do video gaming, war gaming, and board gaming to do it, but role-playing is my baby. So um, I found myself a couple of days back very tired, very stressed. Um, I run anywhere up currently up to six games a week for just my site here in Geelong, and I'm about to launch a new site and assist two other sites using these programs. So anyway, I'm, I'm running these games, and I'm very tired because in my experience with these particular kinds of games, um, a lot of the time, the energy is just coming from me, or the majority of it's coming from me. So the way that I explain it to others is when I'm playing a role-playing game with my friends, I build a certain amount of energy telling the story or setting the scene as the GM. I throw that energy out, and then my players take that energy, convert it to what's applicable to them, and they throw it back at me. And we have this constant backwards and forwards of, of energy exchange, and that keeps the whole game running. It's, it's part immersion part, um, enthusiasm, etc. So a big problem that I have with some of my guys, especially because I'm teaching a lot of that, is I throw the energy out and it either comes back as a trickle or in some instances it never comes back at all. So I'm constantly sort of, I am the constant energy for the group and it just wears me out. By the end of a, end of a three hour session, I'm, I'm ready for a nap. So I started thinking about, wow, I'm going to open another site. I'm going to be doing even more sessions. This this may actually put me <laughs> put me in um, in a position where I'm not ready to be in. So I was discussing this with a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine, um, Frank Turfler Jr., and he mentioned something today that I hadn't even considered. Now, I've been playing since 81, and for him to sort of make this statement and something click in my brain was quite amazing. But what he said was, what expectations had I set with my players? And 
my first thought was, well, of course I set expectations. We had we have this whole thing about, um, you know, that this is an inclusive table and and um, we will be governing behaviours as a group. It's not just my authority. Everyone will be involved in this and everybody has an equal voice at the table. No one's voice is more important than anyone else's, not even the GM's. But that's really all the expectation that I'd set. And what I realised I hadn't done in that instant was I hadn't set an expectation of what the role of a player within this game is. And that is uh, things like uh, knowing the core rules, understanding how your character works, being ready on your turn, all those kinds of things. I had just sort of assumed that people playing the game do that. But as I thought about it more, I realized that that doesn't always happen not, well, that doesn't happen a lot in the games I do work, but it doesn't always happen in the games that I have in private either. There are players that tend to faff about or be disruptive or don't know the rules or don't even know what their character does or aren't ready at, on their particular turn. So my question, going back to my question, is as GMs, what kind of expectation should we be setting, whether it's at session zero or maybe even continuously as we play for our players to do their part in the game and have an understanding that this game requires their involvement as much as ours. So now I'm thinking about all the things that disrupt my games, whether it's the rules lawyer, whether it's the person that's not ready on their turn, whether it's the person that asks me how to roll or what dice I have to roll every time it's their turn. And some of these guys I've been playing with for, for quite a long time. And I realized that I had set inadvertently an expectation that everything would come from me. I am their resource. I am, I am the person that they go to whenever they have a question about this game. And so I've now got to look at a way to turn that around with my existing groups and to make sure I don't set that as a precedent with my new groups. So there you go. There's my ponder, my question. I hope you can um, roleplay rescue me. And um, yeah, mate, I look forward to your response. Again, cracking show. Big shout out to to Frank. This is really his question when you think about it. And uh, thanks, mate. Have a great one. Hello Rescuers! Welcome back to Roleplay Rescue. Today, I wanted to respond as quickly as I could really to Paris's questions. You'll note that although he pitched that as one question, there are really, I reckon, at least five different elements in there, and I think they all merit some kind of response. This is a big issue. I'm not sure how much justice I can do to it, Paris, but I'm game for a laugh and very much willing to give it a go. So... Here goes. My name is Che Webster, and this is episode 406, Energy at the Table. Alexander McCree, in his book Arbiter of Worlds, provides us, I think, with a very useful analogy. He writes under the heading, Tabletop campaigns are team sports, not social events. He writes the following, quote, If you're planning to start a successful campaign, you need to explain to your friends that you are not hosting a series of social events. You are starting an intramural sports team and asking them if they'd like to be on the team. I think that this idea, 
of joining a sports team is a useful analogy because it immediately begins to address the question of what we expect from players in a pretty evocative way, despite the fact that, as a long-term hater of sport, I feel distinctly uncomfortable using sports analogies to talk about my hobby. At a social event, it's okay to be fashionably late. You show your social status by showing up late, right? And people also feel comfortable with blowing off a social event too. And it's maybe unclear what's expected when you do get there. Some people feel that it's an opportunity to dominate the conversation. Others like to share war stories from their busy work lives, probably to impress us into seeing how important they are. And perhaps others like to just mooch the free food and drink. As an introvert, I know that I can easily find reasons not to attend a social event. And if I do even make it to the event, then I am perfectly comfortable standing on the sidelines and enjoying the show. Because to me, watching extroverts compete for attention, (laughs) that's kind of amusing. Contrast all of that with the concept of a sports team. Everyone understands that there is an expectation for the team players to show up on time and ready to play, for a sporting event anyway. Imagine that the football team striker doesn't show, or that the goalkeeper blows off the game tonight. To extend into American football, everyone gets that the quarterback needs to show up on time, right? In a team sport, everyone is vital to the success of the whole. Everyone trains hard to be ready to play. Players learn the rules of the game, They also think about what's expected of them before they go out onto the field of play. And it's less about individual ego and status, or at least we all recognise that it should be less about the individual. Role-playing games are like a team sport and not a social event. And if you want to set the expectations of your players, I'd recommend starting with that analogy. I think the first thing that really struck me about Paris's message was a key phrase that I think sits at the heart of the issue, really. Paris commented that after a three-hour gaming session at the programme, he's tired. He said that the energy is just coming from me. Being the constant energy of the group wears Paris out. I was immediately reminded of a conversation I had with a good friend of mine way back in the late 90s, about the challenges of running games of Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000, tabletop miniature war games, with a bunch of primary school kids at an after-school club. My friend's name is Tim Eagling. Hi Tim, if you're listening. And the context was talking through the creation of the 40k and 40 minutes skirmish rules for Warhammer 40,000, which was published in White Dwarf magazine shortly afterwards. Anyway, Tim made an interesting point at the time, that really stuck with me. Actually, he said two things. The big thing was that he stated he'd stopped accepting rules questions at the table from the kids. He then went on to comment that if you're not careful, there's a tendency for the host of a gaming group to become the sole provider of everything the group wants or needs. Those words have really stayed with me. They informed how I approached setting up gaming clubs in the 2000s, and they influenced me today when I run my own school gaming group. Although the type of game is very different, the principal question is the same. Who provides for the group at the table? I think a key problem that we need to overcome is this question of how much energy we are putting out there for very little return. 
For this, I'd like to share three thoughts in the hope that at least one of them is helpful. Firstly, as a teacher, I've learned, often painfully, that it's really important to dial down my energy and enthusiasm to allow space for the energy and enthusiasm of the students. We can't not affect the people we interact with. Our enthusiasm is infectious, as is our tiredness and frustration. One of the things that I feel is important, and so regularly forget to do, I'll add, (laughs) one of the things I feel is important is to provide the students I am teaching with a space to act. And I think the same principle applies to the role-playing table. As a GM, I have developed a tendency to go quiet, to fiddle with my notes, dip my eyes behind the screen, disengage from the conversation. All of this with the aim of allowing my players some space to think, talk and eventually act. At first, this can be really painful. The first time I did it, there was a palpable silence in which my players froze. I just outlined the situation. They'd been interacting a little with the environment and then it was time for them to make some decisions. I went silent. I disengaged and silence descended. There was a huge temptation to fill that silence. That's a temptation that must be resisted. These days, It's quite common for me to get up from the table and to go make myself a drink or to go to the loo or, I don't know, anything, something away from the table because I realise that I don't need to be in the room. I don't need to be at the table contributing my energy and enthusiasm all of the time. I give the players some space to discover their own energy, to share and to get enthusiastic together. Secondly, in running games for young adults... I've discovered that Tim Eagling's approach to what I provide at the table is a good approach to take. At first, I am happy to provide the game. I give them dice, I bring along my rulebook, I run the game. I set up the same general expectations and behaviour that Paris does as well, but over time, I withdraw from providing everything. The first time a player asks about something that's in the rulebook, I hand them the rulebook. I might be generous and tell them roughly where to look first time I do it, but after that, when they look at me blankly, I remind them that there's a contents page, and often an index, and then I smile. And they go off to find out for themselves. When players pause at the table and dither over actions, well, the first time I give them some space. I usually reiterate the situation. Okay, so you're in a large chamber with an altar at the far end. The orcs are defending the altar. Your companions have engaged the orcs in combat and there's fighting all around you. You're the cleric, a warrior priest for your god. What do you want to do? Um, I wait. I let silence descend. I'll give them maybe 30 seconds. Usually other players begin to throw out ideas. And I kind of do a tricky thing here. I I stop them from making suggestions, but I only kind of shush them once one or two suggestions have actually been aired. So it looks like I'm stopping them. I say things like, hey guys, quiet, let Billy think. I pause. What do you want to do? If they're looking at the sheet, I ask them to give me eye contact. Hey, dude, look at me. I remind them that we are role-playing. Don't think about the character sheet. Remember, 
You're a cleric of Thor. You serve the god of thunder. Your friends have engaged the orcs in battle. Imagine you're there. Imagine the noise, what you can see. Tell me what you would do if you were there. It never fails. They will tell me something they want to try. And from there, I adjudicate the shit out of the action, and we're back. All well and good. Until the next time. Next time I try to speed it up. Remember, imagine the situation. Imagine you're there. What do you want to do? Next time, I'll start to put on the pressure. I'll count down. Usually it's from 10 to 0 the first time. And then after that, it's from 5 to 0. And if they dither, they lose their turn. I can pretty much guarantee that they'll get ready for next action. Next time. Thirdly, and this is vitally important, I try to make the consequences of actions explicit. I take the advice of the angry GM in adjudicating actions. I expect the player to tell me not only what they want to do, but also how they want to do it. And how we do things is the heart of consequence. There's a difference between trying to get past the guard at the gate by sneaking and trying to do it by intimidating him. In game, when a player hasn't been engaging, or is ill-prepared, or dithers, or is silly, or does something blatantly stupid, well, I just adjudicate the action, and I make the consequences of the action obvious. Did that cleric dither in combat, lose her turn, and then watch idly as the fighter took a mighty hit from the orc boss and went down bleeding? I am not averse to commenting. Wow, that sucks. If only the cleric had been standing up there with him, eh? I guess what I'm saying is that I have expectations of players. They're pretty high expectations. And as they fail to meet those expectations, that's when I make them explicit. I personally think that a long preamble in which a GM sets up the expectations in a session zero kind of way is, well, A, boring, and B, pretty much gets ignored. I think that it's a kind of tough love to deal with the expectations as the player approaches them. Maybe an example or two will help. Imagine a player is off task in the game and fiddling with their phone. I usually ask them to put it away. If they don't comply, then when it's their turn, I just skip over them. When they finally notice, I point out that they were on their phone. I state that I assume people on their phones aren't wanting to play. Perhaps a player is very loudly talking over me and others. I go very quiet and very still, and they wait. And I state that I'm not able to offer situations in the game if I can't hear myself think. And I expect people to be polite, to play together. I don't know if that's helpful. I don't even know whether it's palatable to some people. But honestly, that's how I stop myself from dominating the energy of the group. Again, I view this as a team sport, Role-playing games are not mere social events. And I might be setting up the plays, the situations and the scenario, but I have to, ultimately, allow the players space to make the plays, to make the decisions and take the actions they want to within the game. Okay, so this bit's a little bit more theoretical. Um, It's pretty much based on Sarah Bowman's psychological studies in her book The Functions of Role-Playing Games. 
And I think I spoke about this in more detail back in episode 102 uh, you know, in, in terms of the general kind of role and function of role playing. But anyway, Paris's question raises, I think, the question of the type of gaming community that we're trying to create. As you know, I am a big fan of community and I'm really big into creating community. And so for me, this is a key issue. We create community during a role-playing game, Bowman suggests, through a combination of, quote, role-shifting, ritual enactment, narrative construction, and the utilisation of archetypal imagery, end quote. Okay, so let's try and put that into some plain English. The GM shifts into the role of arbiter and narrator, and the players shift into their individual character roles. Okay, simple so far, I think. So we do this role shifting together in a communal setting through what she calls the ritual enactment of the game. From this activity, we get to construct a narrative, what some people call a story, and we do that in a collaborative format. This in turn allows us to use the deep archetypal images that are drawn from the well of myths, epics and fairy tales. Doing this together draws us together as people. We learn to accept one another through experimenting with the various roles we each can assume. We subconsciously let go of the idea that identity is fixed. And we learn to embrace difference at the gaming table. Now, it's the second step, the ritual enactment. That's where I'd like to spend a little bit of time today. We do this role shifting together in a communal setting through the ritual enactment of the game. What does this mean? In simple terms, I think that the structured play of the game is a ritual. And here we delve a little into the realm of the magical and the religious, so please bear with me. Look, rituals generally seem to have three phases. Firstly, there is a separation from the previous world. The participants leave the mundane world behind. Secondly, there is crossing the threshold. As a group, the participants cross over into the alternate reality of the ritual. Finally, there is the return. The participants leave the alternate reality behind and re-enter the mundane world. I think role-playing games offer this ritual experience. When we turn up to play, we separate ourselves from the mundane world and we shift towards being ready to play. In my experience, this is the turning up and chatting about your week phase that I seem completely unable to eliminate from my sessions at home, but which, at school, is almost immediately over. There, the players arrive, and because we are short on time, they begin to set up to play. The conversation shifts from the mundane, everyday stuff, towards the realm of role-playing. They pick up their character sheet, they review the notes, and they mentally shift into the role, ready to play. I think I need to remember this more deliberately, but part of the GM's role is to invoke the alternate reality of the world. I think it's what lies behind Matt Colville's ritual opening line, when last we saw our heroes. From here, Colville will recap the last session and then move into the game. This is a vital invocation of the ritual. We are now playing the game. All else from the mundane world should, ideally, remain outside of the alternate reality of the game's space. At the end of the session, we need to transition back to the mundane. I think this might be the reason why GMs do experience points at the end of the session. It's a ritual signalling of the journey back towards the mundane. 
We step out of the role of our character. We place them back onto the character sheet and then add some experience points to that sheet. Part of the journey is to take time to resolve character improvement. And then we pack away and chat about the game. And finally, we step out of the gaming space, back into the mundane world, and leave the alternate world behind. For Paris, I think this process might help to create the kind of experience he's looking for. You are the shaman of your gaming group, if you'll pardon the analogy. And it's your role to invoke the game world, to draw the participants into the roles of their characters and to guide them through the shared experience of the game. Consciously make it a ritual. I allow chatter to go on in the living room. Gameplay happens in the front room at the big table. And I find it intrusive when players bring the mundane world to that table. When we transition, I need to be better at invoking the alternate world of the game through actually changing the gaming space to signal this. Phones should be off. People should take their places at the table. And actually, I found it useful at school to arrange the players by initiative order, for example, so that everyone has their place at the table. The GM especially needs to enter the role of arbiter and narrator. And that's why I like low lighting, (laughs) even though it's impractical as we get older and eyes grow dimmer. But that's why some folk employ music. And I think it's the reason for ritual phrases to gather attention. This stuff matters. What am I saying? I'm saying that maybe you need to consider making the ritual a little more ritualistic. And inside rituals, behaviours change. The social hierarchy changes. The shaman becomes the guide. The participants are stripped of their mundane rank and social position. Instead, new social hierarchies emerge, new roles. In role-playing, one player becomes the spokesperson, another the mapper, a third becomes the tactician. Each group's experience is different, but each group needs to leave the old expectations of the mundane world, leave them behind, and enter into the shared alternate reality of the game. Only then will they be able to fully immerse themselves in the character and learn their place within the game. But that's probably enough of that for now. Blimey, that was a lot. So how do we pull it all together and try to answer Paris's question? Well, we talked about role-playing games as being more akin to a team sporting event than a typical social event. Expectations can be set through sharing this analogy with players early on. I think it's worth doing. You are expected to turn up, be on time, be prepared and know your place. We've also explored various techniques for drawing players into the behaviours we want to see at the table. Giving them a space to release their own energy is kind of key to this. They need time to think, to talk and to make decisions, and they need space to act. Sometimes that means we have to get out of their way. On the other hand, placing responsibility on the players by allowing the natural consequences of negative behaviours to run their course is perhaps also a useful tool. Expect players to become self-sufficient over time. Expect players to focus. And expect players to make their own decisions and make the outcomes explicit. And finally, we explored the idea of the role-playing game as a shared ritual, shifting our own and the players' mindsets using the power of ritual. I think this is key. Invoke the game. 
Have the players separate themselves from the real world. Have them enter the alternate reality of the game world and help them to leave the fantastic realm behind at the end, moving them back into the mundane world. When they are in the game space, in the alternate reality of the world you have invoked, the expectations upon them are different. Surrounding all of this for me is the need to meet people as equals within the shared alternate space of the game. I try to accept my players for who they are within that context. Worldly rank is stripped away. Social position no longer binds us. Instead, we are bound through the shared experience of the game. And together, through this community of discovery, we learn to accept one another as fellow travellers in a fictional and yet kind of magical world. And that's about all I have to say about that. Hey, Shay, it's Joe Richter. Uh, I just wanted to call and say thank you for... Uh, your call in on Spencer's show on Keep Off the Borderlands, man. I really appreciate all that information you gave on the Rollmaster books and the best ways to find them. Uh, that was super cool. And yeah, I do know that um, ICE still exists in some sort of way. I've spoken to them a little bit on Twitter and they seem like super rad people. The sad thing is the soul crushing thing is they don't own the rights to the merp game anymore so they don't have any more merp pdfs or anything like that because they lost the rights you know they obviously didn't go into the how or why with me but yeah anyway man thanks again peace out hey joe man it's great to hear from you thanks for the call in I have to say, I find it always really amusing, this crossover between podcasts. I absolutely love it. I think it's what makes Anchor and the Anchorite community so, so strong. But hey, man, you know, welcome. I um, I don't know, I was partway through his episode and I kind of, um, I was listening to you kind of bemoaning, oh, you know, is that stuff even out there and what have you? And I just had to get on the phone. And then, of course, about two seconds later, Spencer himself in his own episode talked about how it was on drive Through RPG. So I don't know. But hey, I... I yeah, like you, I have an affinity and a love for all things Rollmaster and um, the Lord of the Rings role-playing game. I played that a big time in the back in the day as well. I think I've spoken about it on the show before. We used to play an awful lot of Rollmaster, and one time we were playing in Moria. We did it as a 24-hour charity role-playing game, and that's where my most memorable character comes from. I think possibly the only character I really truly remember from my youth, Goriel Swiftfoot as he leaps 50 foot in the air and decapitates a Balrog simply because we kind of applied the critical hits table probably a little bit too generously when I think about it. But hey, it was fun. Anyway, I'm blithering on. Joe, thanks for calling in, man. It's really great to hear from you. And uh, please don't be a stranger. Game on, man. Peace out. Massive thanks to Paris Conti for the question. Man, that was a doozy of a call-in to wake up to this morning. Thank you. And I have to say, I think I might be slightly jealous because you seem to be playing games for a living, dude. Anyway, I hope that there is something in this episode, which is really a very extended reply to you. There's something here to help you figure it out. Thanks, man. Great stuff. Paris, by the way, is one of the amazing Roleplay Rescue patrons. There are currently 25 people who support the show through Patreon, and I am grateful to each and every one of them. So thank you all for putting your support my way. Finally, thank you to you, the listener. 
for your patience and your engagement with this episode. I hope you found it interesting and perhaps even just a teeny bit useful. Please let me know what you think by calling in. Thank you. And that's it for another episode. I suspect it has grown far larger than I was aiming for, but ho-hum. My name is Che Webster, and this has been episode 406 of Roleplay Rescue. See you again next week. Game on!